Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, with the Costa Rica USA World Cup qualifier on Tuesday, I sit down in San Jose, Costa Rica with U.S. assistant coach Tab Ramos, who tells the story of the first time he spotted an 11-year-old Christian Pulisic playing in a youth tournament. Before I finished walking around the field, I got on my phone and called U.S. Soccer immediately. I think I called, I'm not sure, but I think I called Tony Lepore and I said, do you know about this kid? Because I went to the bench uh, right away, and I think Christian's dad was one of the coaches on Mm -hmm. the team, and I asked, who is that? All that and my thoughts on the latest in soccer coming up. This episode of the Planet Football Podcast with Grant Wall is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Guys, whatever you're wearing right now, Mack Weldon is better. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. At the risk of TMI, I'm wearing Mack Weldon boxers right now, and they're terrific. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershorts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you'll ever wear. Plus, Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they'll still refund you, no questions asked. They aren't just comfortable. Mack Weldon looks good and it performs well too. It's good for everyday life, going to work, going on dates, and working out. All their products are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code PLANET. Easy shopping, great customer service, good-looking, super comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, and hoodies. MacWeldon.com, 20% off using the promo code PLANET. All right, let's start the show. I'm in San Jose, Costa Rica this week for the U.S.'s World Cup qualifier on Tuesday, November 15th against Los Ticos. Before we get to my interview with Tab Ramos, I want to get some things off my chest. First off, the U.S.'s 2-1 home qualifying loss to Mexico on Friday, the day Dos Acero in Columbus died. If you're a U.S. player or fan, the most frustrating part is getting back into a tough game and looking like you're the more likely team to get a winner, only to give up the game-winning goal by losing Rafa Marquez, of all people, on a set piece. It's like managing to perform Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 3, only to screw up your performance on chopsticks. This U.S. loss, the first home qualifying loss in 15 years, came off a confident Mexico performance, but let's be clear, it was just as much self-inflicted by the United States, whether we're talking about the late goal or about Jurgen Klinsmann's decision to change up his tactics and use a 3-5-2. The key to the U.S.'s solid play in recent months was consistency at last under Klinsmann in terms of personnel and tactics. That somehow went out the window in the biggest home qualifier of the year. By the time the Americans returned to their familiar 4-4-2 28 minutes in, they were already down a goal. And while putting Christian Pulisic in a central attacking role is where he'll excel eventually for the U.S., using him there for the first time against Mexico was an unnecessary risk. Keep in mind, Pulisic is 18, and he hadn't played that position yet at Dortmund or for the U.S. The U.S. has never won here in Costa Rica, and the Ticos are on a high after grabbing three points in Trinidad and Tobago. Zero points in the first two qualifiers would be a brutal way to start the hexagonal for the U.S. That said, 
There's still a significant margin for error in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, and it's best not to assume anything after match day one, in which the away teams won all three games for the first time since 2001. In other news, last week was about much more than a soccer game in the United States. Donald Trump won the presidential election, and that is a much, much bigger deal than sports. But with the U.S.-Mexico game taking place three days after the election and widespread concerns there could be ugliness in the stands, I do want to give a thumbs up to fans, players, and everyone else in the stadium that night for avoiding any major incidents. From the pregame photograph of the U.S. and Mexican players together with their arms around each other's shoulders, to the inclusive approach of the American Outlaws, the biggest U.S. fan group, the right tone was struck. Yes, there were the usual sports-related dust-ups between U.S. and Mexican players toward the end of the game, but that's sports. Nothing that happened on the field or in the stands will change the results of the ballot box or what's happening in America. But our soccer community can be proud of the way it handled the climate around that game. Every week, I'm going to have a segment called What's on My Radar? It's a look ahead at something interesting about to take place in the soccer world. This Saturday is the showdown in the German Bundesliga with Christian Pulisic's Borussia Dortmund hosting league leader Bayern Munich. Coverage starts on Big Fox at noon Eastern on Saturday, kickoff at 12.30 p.m. What's at stake? A lot for Dortmund, which is six points behind Bayern, but could get within three points with a win or find itself nine points behind with a loss. Bayern has looked unusually ordinary in recent games, and Carlo Ancelotti's team is tied on points at the top of the league with RB Leipzig, one of the biggest surprises in Europe. The atmosphere is going to be amazing in this game, with more than 80,000 fans in Dortmund Stadium, and I had a good talk with Pulisic about that in my recent story on him for Sports Illustrated. You can read that at the URL on.si.com slash Pulisic with a capital P. And now, our in-depth interview for this week with U.S. assistant coach, Todd Ramos. Welcome. I'm here at the U.S. Team Hotel in San Jose, Costa Rica with today's guest. Tab Ramos is currently an assistant coach for the U.S. Senior Men's National Team and the head coach of the U.S. Under-20 team. He's also one of the greatest players in U.S. history, a skilled midfielder who played in three World Cups and is a member of the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Thanks for joining me, Tab. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. And thank you for the introduction. (laughs) I try my best. Um, (laughs) I wanted to start, obviously, big game here on Tuesday in World Cup qualifying against Costa Rica. First off, what were your main takeaways from the Mexico loss on Friday? Well, I mean, obviously, I can't speak for Jurgen. You know, Jurgen always makes all the final decisions on everything. I think in terms of what we saw from the team, obviously, we saw a little bit of what everybody saw. You know, we were a little bit flat in the first half, and, and we were a much better team in the second half uh, and could have won the game. So I think, you know, as as we move on, you know, World Cup qualifying is a very cruel process. Yeah. And, uh, and you just have to take the positive and move on because uh, we're down here to get some points. As far as the Mexico game is concerned, what was the thought process of changing up things so much for that game in terms of the three-man back line, especially? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was uh, it was a matter of changing things so much. It was just due to personnel where we fit best according to where the players are playing in their own clubs and where they're most comfortable. Obviously, not having Jeff Cameron here uh, was a little bit of a loss to us because uh, he brings a lot of intensity and and physicality to the game as well as you know good feet. And so so we had to adjust a little bit. And I you know at that point we thought that was the best scenario. Looking at this game here in Costa Rica, the U.S. has never won here in Costa Rica. How are you approaching this game? Well, we're approaching it uh, as we approach most games when we go on the road. You know, you have to be a little bit conservative at first, but there's no question that we're here to, to try to get points and to figure out a way that we can transition fast enough to, uh, to get to goal and, and to hopefully get a win. As I understand it, you were the first person from U.S. soccer who spotted Christian Pulisic and recommended getting him into the U.S. soccer system. Now, I know there's a ton of people who deserve credit so for, for finding Christian Pulisic, including Christian himself and everything he's done to get to this point. But I am curious to know the details of the story about when you first saw him. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I obviously don't want to take credit for that because I shouldn't, first of all. I can tell you about the first time I saw him. Yeah. And I, know, I don't know where that falls in terms of discovery because Christian Pulisic was a great player probably when he was six years old. That's how that works. Uh, so I don't think anyone can take credit for seeing him or developing him or anything like that. But I saw him when he was probably 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. uh, it was in Washington, D.C. I, I was in my process of sort of learning my trade and coaching, and I was coaching in the Development Academy for quite a few years. I think I was coaching an under-16 game, and I saw Christian Pulisic play for, I think it was PA Classics against D.C. United. Mm -hmm. So he was in an under-14 age group, but I think he was 11 or 12 uh -huh. because I actually what attracted me to to watching a little bit of the game as I was walking by to go coach my game was the fact that I saw someone who was so little on the field. <laughs> I mean, he, he completely looked like someone's little brother that just jumped on the field and I was waiting for somebody to get him out. And then I realized, wow, is he not only look like he doesn't belong physically, but he's running the show. Huh. This kid is running the show. And he clearly was younger, smaller, and didn't look like he belonged in the game until he was around the ball. And until you watch the game for about five minutes and you realize that everybody was playing through him and mm -hmm. the game was actually, the pace of the game was completely run by him. So before I finished walking around the field, I got on my phone and called U.S. Soccer immediately. I think <laughs> I called, I'm not sure, but I think I called Tony Lepore and I said, do you know about this kid? Because I, I went to the bench uh, right away and I think Christian's dad was one of the coaches on mm -hmm. the team and I asked, who is that? And they said, and so Christian's dad said, well, that's my son. I was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, that's so great. And as soon as they told me his name, I went and called U.S. Soccer. And I think I called Tony Lepore. And Tony said something like, we're aware, or we've been tracking, or we've heard about him. Or, but he was definitely not another player. He's definitely a player that you don't need a scouting system to scout. I think anyone would have made the call. How often do you have moments like that when you're in that type of situation? That's, yeah. that's got to be a pretty rare occurrence, right? Yeah, I, so, you know, so now we can backtrack a little bit sort of to my development as a coach a little bit. And so I've, I've done a lot of youth games. So I've coached all the way from, you know, under 10s all the way through U18s. So I've seen a lot of games. I probably coach about four or 500 youth games mm -hmm. uh, through, you know, eight or nine years or 10 years, multiple teams uh, to get a lot of experience experience and I've never come across a situation like this wow. that was the only time huh. and I recall it like it was yesterday only because it's not the norm to yeah. see someone be 
so much different and to run the show the way he did. So now that Polisic is doing what he's been doing, very promising, obviously, at Dortmund, very promising with the national team as well. What do you think like, about the last few years from that first moment you saw him until where he is now and about how that's gone? Uh, you know, it's gone the way you hope it goes mm-hmm. um, because at different times you, you are highly hopeful of certain players and then you see that somehow they fade. Yeah. You know, in particular when you see players that are that young, 12, 13 years old, and you see, wow, this, he's special. And then you find yourself saying two years later, eh, I wonder what happened to that player I saw and you just sort of not you don't hear from him again. That's more the norm. Yeah. And so in Christian's case, it's everything that you hope. And it, he, you know, Christian gives you every reason to, gives everyone every reason if for any time they're watching a game throughout the country when they see someone exceptional to pick up the phone and call. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, he's the kind of player that has sort of come along the way you would think that first day I saw him. That's exactly how I would think his progression would have been. Yeah. It would have been this good. Huh. I, one question I have, having to spend some time with him and his dad, mm-hmm. is this is a kid who developed on U.S. soil. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like he went to some other country to yeah. develop. How repeatable is this? You know what I'm saying? Like, in well, the sense of, like, is this something that can happen in greater numbers than yeah. we're seeing maybe right now? Well, look, I mean, you know, and this is a touchy question because a lot of people get paid a lot of money for youth development. And so I'm U.S. Soccer's youth technical director. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could tell you I have a pill to develop players like Christian Pulisic or I have a system or I have a curriculum that's going to put players on the field like like him. And the fact is, if I did, I probably wouldn't be working here. (laughs) I don't know where I'd be, but I think I'd be making a lot more money somewhere else because I just don't think there's a club in the world that has a formula to develop the exceptional player. Mm. I think clubs have a formula to to make the players the best that they can be. But in the end, I think there's a lot of natural talent there. So what did happen when you made that phone call? To Tony Lepore, did yeah. like it, what did U.S. Soccer then sort of do with the knowledge? Oh, here's this 11 year old kid. Well, I, I mean, I think there was already awareness that there was, you know, there had been other calls about him, mm. and and so I think you know, getting a call, I think from someone like me, maybe that raises a little bit more awareness within the program and says, hey, you know, we've gotten calls maybe from people close to his town, yeah. and of course they're going to think he's great because who doesn't have a great player in their town? But maybe this became a little bit different. Interesting. This game here in Costa Rica is being played in the new Chinese-built stadium here in Costa Rica. My theory is it's better for the U.S. to play in this stadium, which is kind of antiseptic. The fans are a long way from the field. There's a track around the field. Compared to the old Saprissa Stadium, which was literally called the Monster's Cave, and which you played in over the years, what were the challenges of playing in the old Saprissa Stadium? Uh, Saprissa was the absolute worst place to go playing in. <laughs> I mean, I know, you know, obviously San Pedro Sula, you know, and Honduras, but, but Saprissa was the worst, most difficult environment to be in. Huh. Um, I think to come here and play in the National Stadium is, you know, it's just a soccer game. Yeah. And yeah, of course, you have fans against you, and of course, coming into the stadium is difficult, but 
but the game is just a game. And when you went to play at Saprissa, it was, it was much more than that. It was a really difficult environment. Well, give me some details about what it would be like well, when I mean, you were you playing could get, You know, it was difficult to just even walk onto the field with the things you get thrown at you. And I don't want to repeat some of the things I would get thrown, but it was really filthy and you would get spit on and everything you can imagine. Mm -hmm. You know, your locker room would shake and you, you know, your bus would get rocks thrown at the bus, broken right. windows. I mean... It was just it was just different. I think now it's a, it's more civilized, <laughs> and I think we uh, we certainly welcome that. And you know, I mean, that's just the evolution of of soccer in general. You yeah. know, the world is becoming a more civilized in terms of soccer, and and now what's important is who the best team is on the field. One of your greatest playing moments came in a World Cup qualifier against Costa Rica in Portland, Oregon, in 1997. You hit a rocket of a goal that made the difference in a U.S. victory. What are your memories of that day and that goal? You know, I mean, believe it or not, that was a very special goal for me because I had just come, you know, after really, after 1995, I started to get injured all the time. My body just, you know, as I got older and I got closer to 30, it, it you know, became difficult for me to be on the field all the time. And I had just come back from an ACL injury. And so I think that was my first qualifier back. Hmm. Uh, so for me to get my first start and right away and, and to score the winning goal, I uh, had a lot of meaning because... It was my first ACL, and I knew how hard I had worked to get back on the field. Mm -hmm. When at the time, people thought, hey, you know, if you do your ACL, this was mid-90s, you know, towards later 90s, you know, at times people would think when you do your ACL, who knows if you come back to be the same. Mm -hmm. So it was a way to sort of prove to me, hey, I worked really hard, and this is the reward for working hard, and I could help the team to qualify. So that was, that was a special goal. Okay. Also, to add to that, yeah. there was the, it was the first time that they had the, what are they called? The bangers, I yeah, remember that bangers. game. <laughs> that was the first day ever. It was like the strangest thing. Their fault. Portland was rocking, by the way. It was an amazing atmosphere, and they were, uh, and they had those things for the first time, which, uh, that was a little bit unusual. I mean, everyone thinks Portland's more of a modern phenomenon, and they have great fans there now with the yeah. Timbers, but that was an amazing atmosphere that day. Just It was crazy, yeah. So cool. It sounds crazy, but sort of my sense is that the U.S. national team has gotten so many new fans in recent years that the majority don't know much about the history of the team, even in the 1990s and early 2000s. Mm -hmm. You were on World Cup teams in 1990, 94, and 98. What were the biggest differences in the team back then compared to now? Well, I think the biggest differences come in terms of physical ability. I think the teams now, in terms of how much better they can develop physically, you know, a team can do a lot more running, nutrition is a lot better, mm -hmm. there's a lot more attention paid to that type of thing, to becoming the full, complete athlete. Whereas in the 90s, you know, you, you just needed to be a good player, mm -hmm. you know, and obviously if you played for a good club, that was good enough. Now it's just almost that's not good enough. Now mm -hmm. you have to have proper nutrition, you have to be you know, completely dedicated to the sport. And I'm talking everybody in general terms. Uh, so the game has come along, obviously not just here, but all over the world. It's a different game than it used to be. At the same time, and I feel comfortable asking you this question mm -hmm. because you see this national team mm -hmm. all the time. You were around in the 90s playing. There's got to be some things that were actually, are actually similar that haven't changed all that much. Mm -hmm. And I know it's a sensitive question to ask, mm -hmm to compare those U.S. teams of the yeah. 1990s to today's team. But right. was the skill level all that different? 
I don't feel like the skill level was all that different. I really don't. I mean, if you know, if I looked at the '94, and look, by the way, I think if today's team played the '94 team, today's team would probably run that team over. Really? Uh, just because physically, this team is at a different level okay. uh, than that team could have even been. But in terms of the skill of the team. I mean, it's it's hard to tell because you don't you also you don't you don't want to minimize how difficult it is to play in today's environment. Mm -hmm. So in every sport you look at, today's athletes are much better than in the past. So it's hard to put them on the same field ever. But I'm comfortable to say that our 1994 team was was technically as good as any team we've ever had. How did you get those skills? I guess it's kind of a basic question, but you're one of the most skilled players the U.S. has ever had, and the culture in the U.S. hasn't always been adapted to teaching that level of skills. How did you go through that process? Well, you know, it's, it was completely different times because, yes, it was the, sort of the beginning of soccer. I don't, you know, obviously no disrespect to whoever came before us. Right. But we hadn't qualified for a World Cup in 40 years. So what we did was really new. It was new to the game. It was new for the American fans to be able to cheer for their team. Mm -hmm. This was all new. And I think we, do, we, we had to break down some barriers because we had come from an environment that was purely from the 60s, 70s, and 80s that had been purely mostly German and English. And, and you know, here comes now a little bit of Latin influence and mm -hmm. guys who like to take guys on and like to have a little more fun. I remember my dad telling me one time, hey, you know, you, why do you have to come back and, and run and get the, just stay up high and huh. wait till they give you the ball and take somebody <laughs> on and then just do your job? I mean, that's... You know, and I remember telling my dad, I was like, you know, dad, and he had been involved in the game for years and years. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, dad, if I do that, I don't play. <laughs> I have to run in order to be able to play because that's just what the environment required. Right. Uh, and so I had to take a position, a midfield position in which I had to show the coach that I could wear studs every day and tackle everybody. And then and then I could do my thing going forward. Mm -hmm. So first I had to do the rest of it. So it was, it was breaking down some barriers uh, in terms of, you know, our coaches having people who were open to that you know mm -hmm. bob gansler came in and said hey you know what i want skillful players as long as they can cover their function on the team yeah. and not take shortcuts i want the players who work hard but who like to be creative okay uh, because i don't remember bob ever restricting me from you know from taking someone on or from losing a ball in a certain place mm -hmm. as long as i work hard for the team then going forward that was my call what okay. happened and so and so it was the beginning of something new was most of your skill acquisition taking place on U.S. soil? I, I forget what year you moved to the United States. So I was 11 years old. So, yeah, mostly, obviously, grew up through the U, youth soccer system. Yeah. But I was on the U-20s when I, I was on the U-20 national team when I, I was 15. Yeah. So I got on the national team early, and we didn't have any younger national teams. Mm -hmm. So I was always playing on the same team, which okay. was great development for me because I was playing against older boys all the time. In the 1994 World Cup, your U.S. team caught the country's imagination by advancing to the round of 16 against Brazil on the 4th of July. Right. But in that game, a truly scary thing happened. Brazil's Leonardo elbowed you in the face and broke a bone in your face. Uh, I've heard different stories over yeah. the years about how serious that situation really was that day. So I wanted to ask you... I've heard even that your life might have been in danger at that point. What do you yeah, remember? What I, I was mean, it? I've heard all kinds of things from, you know, how's your broken nose to, you know, like all kinds of stuff. And yeah, my nose is big, but it has nothing to do with that day. Uh, I actually had a broken skull. And so I had to go directly to the hospital. Obviously lost consciousness, lost control of my body on the field. As if anyone has seen the video, 
you know, I, I lose complete control. And then the danger was that I had a little bit of internal bleeding. Hmm. And so that could be, you could go immediately into surgery if, so they had to monitor me for one or two days in the hospital um, before I could leave. It was scary. I know that, you know, I, I had to wait about a week and Cal- we were on the West Coast. Obviously the team lost that day. Uh, so we were done from the World Cup, but I was not allowed to fly to the East Coast because hmm. of the altitude of the flight. Wow. So I had to stay out in California seven to 10 days. And then by the time I went to the East Coast, I saw a doctor that, that was the doctor in New York City. I went to the doctor that was the doctor of the U.S. Olympic boxing team. And he looked at all the whatever the scans and everything else we had. And he said, look, if you were a boxer, I would tell you you could never box again. Wow. If you get hit in the head one more time with a ball really hard, you could potentially lose your life. Hmm. So that's something for you to consider. So, I mean, obviously that's that's big news, but I, I couldn't have imagined myself living without soccer. Hmm. And so I was willing to take whatever risk it took. So about, you know, two and a half, three months later, I was back on the field. And so did you ever have any scary situations with the ball hitting you in the face after that? Or um, anything else? I, I did, but not a serious shot to the head for a couple of years. And so I, I just kind of brushed it off and everything was fine. I never, you know, and I still, still nowadays, you know, when I have like an overcast day, you know, sometimes I feel sort of a headache on that side of yeah. my head. So I still feel it, you know, however many years later, a couple decades later now, and I still do feel it sometimes. Is it some ways strange, I guess, that the biggest game you were ever involved in on U.S. soil, at least, mm-hmm in a round of 16 World Cup game against Brazil is also not just this memory of this amazing setting, but right. then this horrible thing to kind of grapple with that. Right. For me, it, it became not this special moment to play against Bebeto and Romario and Dunga and the greatest players that they had. For me, it, you know, that game, I see it as a, as a very bad memory. Mm-hmm. And that's too bad because, like you said, that could be the moment in my whole career where, wow, I mean, you know, a chance to make it to the quarterfinals of the World Cup, and we were we were having a great game against Brazil at that time, uh, and we had a shot to beat them. Although eventually they became the world champions, but well, we played well. That was a good team, and unfortunately that game just became a bad memory for me. Your playing career ended in 2002. How did you make the transition into coaching? Uh, it happened a little bit by accident. So, if you would ask me in 2001 if I was going to be a coach. You know, I would love to tell you now that this was a passion of mine my whole life. Uh, in 2001, I would have told you, no, thanks. That's not for me. Huh. Um, I never really paid too much attention to coaches anyway. I just did the minimum <laughs> to stay on the field and be a starter all the time. And then the rest, I just did whatever I f- sort of felt in the yeah. games anyway. But then in 2002, after I retired, I took the B license only because a bunch of other pro players were taking it at the time. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm going to jump in. Mm-hmm. And it caught my attention. And what caught my attention the most was the fact that I recognized that day how little I knew about soccer. I basically knew nothing. It sort of shocked me that I went through a full career of playing, 13 years on the national team, having played overseas in a couple different countries, and I knew nothing about the game. I didn't know how to scout a game. I didn't know how to watch a game. I didn't know functions of players. Like I knew very little. So when I took the license, I was like, wow, I want to learn more. Yeah, And so I started coaching a little bit and I coached my kids a couple of years and then I felt like I want to take a team and then I want to take my A license and it grew from there and I developed a good a passion for the game. And I think what really sealed the deal for me was about, I think it was around 2004, I had my B license for two years already. 
Xavier Escargorta, who was the head coach of Bolivia in the 1994 World Cup team, mm -hmm. and you also coached uh, Valencia and Athletic mm -hmm. Bilbao in Spain. I knew him from Spain, from mm -hmm. when I played in Spain. And I saw him at a, uh, at a clinic. And he, it was a clinic in the U.S. I don't want to make the story too long, but, but it was a clinic in the U.S. And he didn't have a ride, so I became his ride to go to, like, the supermarket when he needed something because <laughs> we were there for a week. So I was, like, his chauffeur for a week. And at one point he said... He said, do you really want to be a coach? And I said, yeah, I think I do. I think I'm getting a passion for coaching. And he goes, well, if you want to be a coach, you have to go back to coaching the young players. That's how you really learn hmm. to be a real coach because you'll know everything about the game. Right now, you know nothing. And I was like, wow. So I took that advice. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I started coaching under 10s and I coached every age group all the way to under 18 for the next seven or eight years. Huh. And when I was done, I called him. I called him and I said, hey, coach, you know what? I did it. I did it. And because I remember that that was really important to me. And, and obviously the passion continued to develop. And I, you know, and I, I love what I do. I, I love coaching. Well, it seems pretty rare to me because so many players who have accomplished quite a bit in their playing career yeah. aren't really willing to do what you yeah. did. They want a head coaching job immediately yeah. or like an MLS assistant job yeah. immediately. Was there sort of a, a humility, I guess, in, oh, so on your much. part? Yeah, it was so much. It was such a great learning experience. I mean, going from being on your knees, you know, throwing balls to players and teaching them how, how to properly, you know, have the right form to hit a ball to then coaching U18 development academy teams where you're actually competing against MLS teams and then moving on to youth national teams and coaching internationally. I mean, it's just such a great learning experience. It's amazing, you know, but, you know, nowadays we have a lot of what you would call maybe laptop coaches. Yeah. So everybody can put presentations together and you can go in front of a club and you know, show them graphs and, right. you know, and not really, you don't really have to know the game in depth so much as long as you can show all these uh, you can put all these presentations together and sometimes that's how people get back involved in the game. So when you're with the senior national team like you are now, mm -hmm. you're obviously the U20 head coach, but what are the specific tasks like right now that you're doing to help the team prepare for this World Cup qualifier? So mostly on most camps, I'll tell you most camps first and then I would tell you a camp like this one, for example. So most camps, I'm normally in charge of training the guys who are not playing. Okay. So, which is a difficult task. Mm -hmm. And fortunately for us, we have great people on the team and we have guys who work very hard because as you know, with teams, if you don't have the, the guys who aren't playing, working really hard, then your first team is not working hard. Mm -hmm. And so you want players who are actually right there looking for somebody to make mistakes on the first team so they can jump in and take and get in front of them. And so keeping them upbeat is, is part of my job. Keeping okay. them training hard is part of my job. And then obviously giving Jurgen my advice like any coach would. Well, I think we should do this. And, and that, although Jurgen may not do what I want to do, it may trigger him to think other things. Mm -hmm. Just like, And that's the normal job of an assistant coach. Right. So a normal job of an assistant coach is not to tell the head coach everything they want to hear. It's to tell them to make them think out of the box and to say, no, I would do this. And then, of course, the coach is going to decide what they want to do. And normally they're not going to pick what you want to do. Uh, but you have to move on because that's what you're there for. You're there for your opinion. Interesting. Kind of a broad question here. What to you is good soccer? 
Wow, this, you know, there's, you know, if had you asked me this question, you know, this question maybe seven, eight years ago, I would have said, hey, you know, good soccer is just possession base, you know, where everybody touches the ball and everybody's, you, know, you have the ball the whole time. But I think the world has become such now that there's so many teams that can hold the ball mm -hmm. that I think there's a premium now on penetration. You know, you want players who can make plays. That mm -hmm. makes me excited. So when I, when I teach the game to the younger players, and I don't want to say teach because I don't want to take credit for that, but that's part of, that's part of what I do with the youth national teams. Although they're national team players, they still have a lot to learn. So I try to put things in perspective, what's important to them. So even when you're coaching players, like whether it's Gideon Zalalem or Emerson Heinemann or, or Rubio Ruben or guys who are good players, mm -hmm. you still have to show them something that means something to them. So if you tell them, hey, you know what? It's great that you can pass the ball around here side to side and it's great that you can keep possession. But you know what? The money is over there. The money's inside that box. And if you don't get in that box, you're not getting the money. <laughs> and so you, you try to give them little examples that kind of put things in perspective that maybe one day they either think, hey, you know what? Tap coached me five years ago. He was either crazy or I remember what he coached me and I took something out of it. So one of the two. But at least you make them think a little bit uh, yeah. in a way that, that makes sense to them. Okay. Uh, and so for me, what's good football? Good football is, is, is one where the players play happy. Mm -hmm. And the players like to make plays, and they're not afraid to make mistakes. Okay, interesting. I learned a long time ago that most assistant coaches in any sport want to be head coaches someday. Do you want to be the U.S. national team coach someday? Wow, that's it's a tough question because, I, I mean, that's, you know, it's an easy one. Who wouldn't want to be head coach of the U.S. national team? I, you know, I like the position I'm in now. I like the fact that I have so much responsibility um, because I'm a U20 national team coach and I'm youth technical director for U.S. soccer. So I like where I, where I fit. Yeah. And who knows if one day I have the opportunity? Of course, I would love it. Like I think every American should. Yeah. What are the next steps that need to take place in the development of U.S. soccer? Well, I mean, there's been so many steps already, and, mm -hmm. and I could go back to all the changes that we made just in the last six to eight months, starting with small-sided games. Mm -hmm. You know, so we, we changed the game completely. Okay. Um, I think what's become important is the player's relationship with the ball rather than the result of the game, and that's been fairly obvious over the last five or six years. We've been preaching that. And so now we've implemented some rules that I think will help towards that. Okay. Uh, the game has changed completely. So from playing 7v7 to then 9v9 to then 11v11, we made the field smaller. Mm -hmm. We're giving players a lot more of an opportunity to be in touch with the ball. So players, smaller players not play on smaller fields. They get more touches. They get to be in situations where a player is on them and they get to protect the ball and turn and pass. And, mm -hmm. and I, think, I think the game... From making those changes to making the, the birth year changes to some rule changes that we've made with the uh, build out line. I don't know if you heard about that. So in the younger, yeah, I so, so in the, so in the younger age groups, we, we've developed a build out line. So when, when a goalkeeper catches the ball, the other team has to retreat hmm. like about 10 yards outside the box so that the goalkeeper now, he can't punt. Now he has to roll the ball to an okay. outside back. So this will be the youth game in the next few years as it evolves. Huh. I think those are all initiatives that take time. Yeah. And so it may take, you know, eight, ten years before we see the results of this, but I think we will see them in all. It's taken quite a few years to just be able to, as you can imagine, with all the different youth groups throughout the countries, AYSO, U.S. Club, uh, U.S. Youth, to get them all on the same page to be able to implement these new ways to play uh, has been a challenge, but everybody's on board, and I think we will see the results of that. I can tell. You're passionate about this. I truly am, yeah. Well, Tab Ramos, thanks for joining the podcast.
Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Tab Ramos as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Thanks also to our sponsor, Mac Weldon. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archive episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Juan Carlos Osorio, Bob Bradley, Gary Lineker, Mike Piazza, and Thomas Mueller. You can subscribe to, like, and review the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.